today I'm at the National Defence University with David Erko. Would you like to just start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm currently an associate professor at the College of International Security Affairs here at NDU. That means that I teach uh, predominantly foreign military officers, but also some U.S. officers and interagency personnel about uh, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, and really how to counter any irregular armed threat that they may be dealing with. Uh, I got to this uh, point in my career uh, via PhD in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, examining the U.S. military's approach to and learning of counterinsurgency. And I recently completed a book uh, that uh, does pretty much the same thing but with the British Armed Forces and produces some very different insights as a result. Uh, my background's in uh, academia and think tanks. Uh, I came to this topic really uh, from the Kosovo campaign onward. I was uh, interested in the asymmetry uh, between Western ways of war and what we found on the ground. So there you had a campaign, of course, where uh, we, we used only air force from 15,000 feet, but of course we always tried to create political conditions on the ground. Uh, and that contradiction, uh, when that became even more acute in the Iraq and Afghan campaigns, led me to the field of counterinsurgency. And that's uh, what I've been doing most of my writing and research on since then. And David's book is called Counterinsurgency in Crisis, and it's been generating quite a discussion through the Small Wars Journal and also War on the Rocks and, and other um, mediums through social media. So to ask that very tricky question, what do you think the future holds? How do you see the operating environment? Well, as someone who's write, written a lot about counterinsurgency, I usually get told that counterinsurgency is dead and uh, we should move on to other things. Uh, I certainly don't want to prejudge things and say that the future will be all coin or we'll do another Afghanistan, another Iraq. I think the future contemporary operating environment, if we want to use that term, will uh, depend very much on what it is that we're trying to achieve. I mean, the political objective really does determine the, uh, our level of engagement with a place where the war is actually unfolding. That is to say, if we are in the business of doing punitive raids or airstrikes, well then you will have a very different experience from, for example, that which we have had in Afghanistan and Iraq. If we want to secure some piece of territory that's uninhabited, again, that's going to be a very different uh, level of complexity. But I would say that in many cases, and I think history bears this out, uh, war is essentially about politics. We try to achieve a political compact that is in some way better for us than what was there beforehand, and that is also sustainable, so that we can actually withdraw our troops at some point and let things sort of go back to some you know, new normal. Well, if you are trying to achieve a new political compact, and if politics is critically about people, then it means that we're going to face many of the challenges that we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan again, albeit perhaps, although not necessarily, on a lower level. So when we talk about what the future conflicts are going to look like, I'm afraid that whether we do another counterinsurgency again, whether we call it coin or whether coin is dead, I think that we have to prepare ourselves for a, a, a range of tasks that are extremely complex in their nature. That is dealing with different languages, dealing with different cultures, dealing with different people and their politics and their aspirations and fears and hopes. Uh, and of course, because we're always operating uh, as an armed force abroad, uh, at least until you know instability at home becomes such a problem that changes, we're always operating via partners, the people who actually own the places where these conflicts take place. So we need to be aware of the likely challenge of having to train up those partners or, or uh, 
uh, work with them or through them, uh, being able to communicate with them, ensuring that they're capable of doing whatever it is that is required. Uh, and that's not just a military challenge. Um, critically, it's also a political one because, of course, again, as Clausewitz and many other people have said since they're him, uh, war is political. So how do we ensure that we find the right type of governance and the right type of uh, um, modes of co-option and control that make up a state, a nation state? Uh, those types of challenges, if we think about them, produce on aggregate a situation that is, I think, similar in complexity to Iraq and Afghanistan. And for that reason, I think those campaigns are, in fact, far less atypical than some people now try to make, uh, make them out to be. So the age-old challenge that war is political, um, it's going to continue to be complex and people will continue to add to that complexity. What role do you see junior commanders, if we deploy for one of these future conflicts or wars, actually playing on the battlefield? Well, I think I mean junior commanders have a very unenviable uh, role to play because on the one hand, it's, it's, the, it's the eternal um, dictum that do no harm, right? I mean, the lessons of Abu Ghraib and these things have taught us about the, what some people call the strategic corporal or uh, the idea that even at the very low tactical level, you have responsibilities and you have an ability or potential to affect the campaign in strategic ways. So you go out and you deploy these missions knowing all the time that any major misstep could in fact be extremely costly. Uh, now, of course, that's impossible. You can't do no harm when you go out and you, you know, you have, you're armed and you're using force and you're engaged in conflict, because uh, not just because war is destructive, but also because through our actions, we're always going to create winners and losers. Even if something as benign as building a well or you know, uh, setting up some sort of local economic project is going to create those people who benefit from that and those people who don't benefit from that. So if you're going to do no harm, it's probably best to just stay at home. Though, of course, that's not the military's decision to make. So I think junior commanders, their first role and responsibility is just to understand that through their actions, uh, they're always going to upset entrenched interests, and therefore they need to think through the secondary and tertiary and unintended consequences of every action. And that's why I say it's, in very, it's a very unenviable position to be, because I can think of few... Uh, other professions where at such a young age you're bestowed with such an awesome responsibility. Um, now, the second thing is, of course, it's not enough just not to do any harm or just to sort of not screw things up. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the puzzle. But what makes this even more complex is that we're also trying to work them towards a mission objective. And what's the role of junior commanders in that, in that, uh, uh, on that front? Well, um, uh, of course, first of all, this is realization again that uh, war is ultimately about politics. So, what is the political objective that's actually being served? I think every commander, no matter where they are in the sort of hierarchy, need to appreciate exactly how their actions and what they're doing on a day to day basis correlates or relates to or leads to, ideally, the mission objective or the campaign plan. Um, so, what does that mean? It obviously means understanding local politics local uh, uh, preferences, and how one's actions meshes with those politics and preferences so as to create that new political compact that the war is ultimately trying to create. Uh, so I think, you know, in one sense, military likes to think of ranks, structures, and hierarchy, and, you know, one person has command over another. Uh, in these types of complex operations, we're really all in it together. 
And uh, that, that, I think, uh, places, uh, again, an unfair, perhaps, burden <clears throat> on junior commanders, but perhaps they can also take some pride in, in having more in common with a brigade commander or even the corps commander than, than, than you would in any other sort of corporation or company where, where you know, the, uh, the hierarchy may be, in fact, more, more acute. As the battle unfolds too, I think it's very difficult for junior commanders because we teach them about complexity and the fact that you may not be able to predict what the effect will be and yet we also then teach them to think through what some of the unintended effects may be. So it's this quite difficult situation that we put them through. But I'm glad that you mentioned they should be quite proud of what they're doing because it is a very demanding and challenging task. On that, what advice do you have for what should a junior commander be doing right now to prepare or, or even when they deploy? Well, of course, you know, again, what you, what you talk of is really, uh, you know, this, this idea of expect the unexpected. And, of course, that's sort of a paradox because how could you expect the unexpected? Well, uh, that, that ties into this question. And I think one of the ways of doing so is just to uh, appreciate the broader context uh, of what it is that we're trying to do. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? It's, it's looking at military confrontations not as a us versus them on a uh, cluttered, congested battlefield, but rather as, again, the political process that the mil use of military force is trying to contribute towards. So reading a lot, I think, is, is a, a very good way of, of um, appreciating that broader context and the way in which uh, politics sort of moves along. Uh, now, of course, I appreciate that the junior officers with all the other training and education and, and, and everything else that they have to do, the time for reading is very sparse. So uh, I think there's probably a way of um, doing this, working smarter rather than harder. I mean, you can't ask junior officers or anyone for that matter to become an expert in anthropology or become an expert in culture, expert in literature, or this and that or whatever, knowing the exact clan structures. I think the most important thing is that, what you, that to know what you need to know. So, and the other requirement then, if you read a lot about the situations of past situation precedents, past case studies, how other people have done before you, uh, I think one of the key insights that will become increasingly germane is not to let labels do the thinking for you. I think there's a tendency, um, perhaps more so in the military than other institutions that I'm familiar with, of, of putting a label on problems and being done with it. For example, insurgent or terrorist or peacekeeper or even something like a government. The language we use has a lot of norms and a lot of expectations wrapped up in them. And I think the more you study history, the more you study past cases and the ways in which they've evolved, it becomes clear that we can't take anything for granted. Uh, who is actually the insurgent in an environment like Afghanistan, for example, where, where NATO arguably has been the, the one with the most revolutionary agenda? Uh, who's a peacekeeper? And what does it mean to actually keep a peace that is not uh, approved of by a large chunk of the population. Uh, what is a government if it doesn't have any legitimacy or if it doesn't have any real capacity? I mean, are we actually just, who are we fooling when we are applying some of these terms? So I think the more we, 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 we read and understand history, the more we read and understand past military campaigns, and again, on the political context of past military campaigns, not just, you know, the Jungle Warfare 101, uh, but really the political objective that was being served by Jungle Warfare 101, uh, the more we, we um, are able to, to um, understand the, the, uh, 
unpredictable ways in which history unfolds. And, and some of the key but very interesting questions about um, terminology, uh, assumptions, and, and um, well, political analysis. Junior commanders in the future, if they were to pick up one of the counterinsurgency manuals, they'll see set steps of clear, hold, build. Mm-hmm. And so taking that from the historical perspective and applying it to a future environment will be quite difficult if they just apply clear, hold, build. Um, they need to apply that to the specific context and the operating environment in which they face. Can you actually talk us through what your thoughts on set steps, for example, in counterinsurgency of clear, hold, builds? Sure. Yeah, clear, hold, build. I mean, I've, as it happens, I've written a fair bit on this in the last year. Uh, clear, hold, build is, of course, uh, ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere. Whenever you talk about counterinsurgency, you'll see clear, hold, build being mentioned at some point. It's even being taken uh, from that context to other contexts, such as you know the Brazilian government tried to clear whole build to counter the gangs in the favelas. So it's it's something that is uh, seemingly universal. But of course, as we also know from Afghanistan and from Iraq and from many other campaigns, the linear or the promise of a linear progression towards an ultimate transition rarely holds true. It's usually very complex to go from step one to step two to step three. Uh, and now why is that? There seems to be some contradiction then, how this po- approach can be so popular, at the same time have a very questionable track record. And I think the one way we should approach a concepts or approaches like clear, hold, build is to think of them as sort of an intellectual aid or a heuristic help or a, uh, as a framework that we need to fill with our own understanding, planning, uh, and uh, analysis. So, for example... Um, if you're going to clear, well, that sounds great, but clearing in and of itself doesn't explain who's going to do the clearing, how are they going to do the clearing, uh, and, and what that is actually going to mean. Uh, now, there are different ways of going about this. An external force can go in and clear a village. Uh, you could clear the village with the villagers themselves uh, to sort of achieve some sort of a civil defense force. Uh, or, or um, yeah, you could try to operate through, uh, you know, the local police force or whatever. All of these questions have extremely different, different political implications uh, depending on the case at hand. So clearing and holding and building, no matter how much doctrine we produce on those things, we're never really going to answer the difficult questions being raised by the individual case. That, of course, requires very careful study of the micro-level politics of where we're actually operating so that you know whether or not if you clear one village, another village will, you know, um, how they will respond. What will be the regional uh, repercussions of what you're trying to do? Uh, so really, I think, I mean, in some, in some uh, field manuals now, it doesn't begin with clear, it begins with, I believe, shape. Uh, and that is, I think, a nod to the fact that we need to think much more carefully about understanding the environment before we sort of just go in there. Um, the one, I think generalizable aspect here, particularly in expeditionary environments, is that we don't do it all for them uh, and that we don't underestimate the complexity of moving from one to the other. Clearhold Build seems to offer a roadmap to success, but if we are the ones rushing through this roadmap, I don't think success is what we're going to see at the end of the tunnel. Uh, The operation in Marja, for example, with Stanley McChrystal, regrettably used this turn of phrase that once the clearing is done, we have a government in a box ready to roll in. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what he meant by that. I have to assume that he he uh, 
he meant something far more uh, profound than than what it sounds like. Because of course, uh, to, to the uncaref- to the careless listener, it does sound rather presumptuous that we can sort of just apply a political solution to a place where you know we don't really understand to begin with. To be quite honest, so we need to be far more careful and far more modest uh, about the pace at which we can sort of fall through this, these different sequences. Uh, and of course, the key question here is who's going to actually work with us? At the end of the day, these are local solutions to local problems. So we need to make sure that we are able to find those partners through which we can operate. And of course, often that would require some level of compromise because we can't expect always to find the right partners. But how much of a compromise can you put up with before it starts actually you know, impairing your, your command objectives? So uh, clearhold build in and of itself uh, will always, I think, be used but the question is, of course, you know, what does it actually mean when you apply it? And the answers to that are almost impossible to, to read in a field manual to, to sort of divine prescriptively. You need to really marry it up with the uh, context on the ground and a very acute and careful reading of that context uh, to boot. And understanding that context on the ground, obviously, is where the junior commander sits and is able to provide the effect of what a planned action or an action already undertaken has and what effects that has had at the micro level and to predict and to see what effects that has at levels sitting above at the operational and even strategic level from way down where that junior commander is sitting on the ground and seeing it all unfold before them. So I think that they're very pertinent points that you've just made. Before we started this podcast, you were telling me a little bit about what um, the program actually, how it's run here at the National Defence University. Would you like to just quickly talk us through that? Sure, sure. I think it's in fact very relevant to the discussion we've had because I find myself repeating the same point, which is that it's so terribly complex and so terribly unpredictable and we need to know this and know that. I, I can imagine the, the sense of desperation. Someone actually takes that advice seriously and tries to you know, prepare accordingly. And in a sense, what we're trying to do here at the College of International Security Affairs, which is an, a subcomponent of the National Defense University, uh, CISA, what we try to do here is teach officers precisely how to go about preparing for that complexity. I mentioned that we deal with counterterrorism and counterinsurgency, but really it's, it's a far broader uh, range of irregular threats to include organized crime, gangs, what have you. Um, now, we invite uh, officers from around the world, particularly from countries dealing with an irregular threat of some sort, and they spend uh, around 10, 12 months here doing a master's degree. Um, and what I do in my department of CISA, which is the War and Conflict Studies Department, is basically prepare them to be strategic thinkers. Um, that means that we have half the year devoted to understanding the problem that their country is dealing with. Uh, and by understanding then, I mean really a rigorous analysis of not just the threat group, but the context in which it's operating. So we ask some very fundamental questions. How is that threat group operating? What is its objective? Where does it get its resources from? How does it use its resources to reach its objectives? Uh, what is its sort of theory of victory? What makes it strong? What makes it weak? What, what are its key capabilities and its key vulnerabilities? Uh, what's its strategy? How can we can capture all of this complexity in, for example, one slide, looking at lines of effort, means, strategic approach, and ultimate objectives? And that, what I just mentioned there, is just one component. We also ask them to look at the roots of the conflict. Now, 
the roots of the conflict, what we mean by that is not just the history. It's not just sort of a, the Wikipedia entry on a particular country. It's really seeking to understand how individuals are driven to join or form movements, armed organizations, that at some point decide to use violence. Why do they decide to use violence? At what point do they decide to use violence? And what is violence supposed to accomplish for them? I mean, those are the type of baseline questions that we all too rarely ask ourselves. At what point did violence become uh, a perceived necessity? Uh, and, and, you know, how does this group relate to other groups that have chosen not to use violence? Uh, those questions also help us get into the analytical discussion of whether the group has a broad base of popular support or whether it's a much more self-contained threat that really is uh, isolated from the society that it nonetheless seeks to shape. Uh, the former could be called an insurgent movement, the latter a terrorist, but the terminology is really just shorthand for a very um, articulate and sophisticated understanding of how the group situates itself in the context in which it's operating. Uh, that brings us to uh, a further discussion of framing and narrative and how the group uh, really articulates what it's doing, because I think it's very important to get into their head. So how, what's, what's their narrative that they spread and how, how successful are those information operations in the broader population? What's some of the uh, terminology that they use? Uh, for example, you know, we, we, we can, this also helps us get away from the sort of assumed uh, um, qualities of terminology. We just looked at one case last week where, you know, pluralism came into this, this discussion. And of course, pluralism to, to, to most people's ears will sound like a natural good. But if you're dealing with an adversary that's drawing legitimacy from some sort of theological basis, the notion of one thing being as good as another, pluralism, is highly taboo or blasphemous because it basically puts then the deity at hand uh, to equivalent on an equivalent basis as some secular concepts like democracy. And that can be very um, challenging to some community. So we try to sort of understand what's the language, what are the information, what's information domain all about uh, within these groups and what are they spreading through their, you know, internet websites or whatever. Uh, and then finally, what is the government doing about this problem? And what is the strength, what are the strengths and weaknesses of that response? So all of that is just in the first term. See, you know, we, Einstein, I believe, said something where he said to have said, that you know, if you have one hour to solve a problem, then you know you spend fifty-eight minutes uh, um, trying to understand it, and two minutes trying to solve it. Uh, well, I think you know we don't have the luxury of, of applying it quite the same division, but we have a similar ideology, which is we spend half the year looking at the problem in such careful detail that we can then use the other half to come up with a strategy, the actual sort of heart of the matter, and the strategy then, what we ask the the officers to do is to come up with lines of effort and a strategic approach that is resourced or resourceable and that meets and defeats the threat group's lines of effort, uh, as explained then in the first term. Uh, we ask them to think about their assumptions going forward with such a strategy. We ask them to think about the risks of their strategy and what may be some risk mitigation uh, measures that could be put in effect. Uh, we ask them to come up with metrics, that's to say, why will this succeed? What is our theory of victory? Uh, and we also ask them to uh, think of phasing, that's to say, you may find yourself in a crisis environment where all you can do is this, but in phase two of this strategy, we will have developed this capability, which would be critical in actually combating the threat in the way that's necessary. Um, 
And we also ask them to um, think of the relevant law. What is the legal foundation for the approach that you're suggesting? Does that law need to change in some way? Or are you, in fact, you know, way outside of the realms of legality and legitimacy, in which case, you know, what does that say about your strategy in terms of its realism, uh, feasibility, and so on? So at the end of the year, then, at the end of the master's degree, each student will have a fairly robust paper that essentially looks like a strategy. It looks like an analysis of the problem and then a, a course of action for how to deal with it. And, and when the, the, these practitioners, because that is what they are at the end of the day, go back to their host governments, uh, that paper has in many cases uh, fed directly into national security strategies for dealing with the threat at hand. So we, we feel it's a, an ideal cross-section or, or, or um, meshing of academia and, and uh, strategic thinking, uh, getting students to think very strategically about their case, uh, understanding the context in which it's operating, and then most, most fundamentally, rather than just sort of, you know, quetching about it, actually coming up with a, a, uh, a plan to, to seek to resolve it. I really enjoyed listening to how the program actually works here. And I think it's a mental exercise that junior commanders can even do. I know that the program here is for lieutenant colonels and above, but there's no reason why a lieutenant can't ask themselves how they see the operating environment, the so what and therefores, and then the so what therefores of all of the assumptions and the actual facts that they know in order to then share that with their mates and discuss that operating environment and then see changes unfold and then go through another analysis of so what therefore and what that means not only to their level at the tactical level, what that means to the operating um, environment and what that means at the strategic level and what it means outside their box too. So what it means for the aid agency that may be within their operating environment or outside their operating environment but influencing in what that means with the host government and the local people on the ground which is where they will be sitting seeing that day in day out so I think that 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 structure is a wonderful thing and it's something that can be applied formally during programs such as this but also as an individual mental exercise it's a great structure right I mean that's that's exactly it and one of the parts that I didn't I think sufficiently emphasize is that you know, a military practitioner will come here with some level of expertise and is then asked to actually pretend, in a sense, to be the, the commander-in-chief or the head of the government or the National Security Council proposing a strategy to the head of the government. And I think that sort of role-playing, in a sense, of course, it takes you outside of your comfort zone, but it also helps situate the military instrument of national power within a context that I think is necessary to understand what war is actually all about. Because, of course, again, to come back to one of the earlier points made, it is all about politics, and we are contributing to a political end state. So I think you're absolutely right. That, that, that intellectual exercise, no matter what the context is, uh, and if it's just you know reading about or studying past campaigns within the political context, I think it's helpful regardless of whether it's uh, you know, part of a degree system like here, or just something that one does, um, you know, at home or whenever. In the mess, maybe, over a beer, right. too, or <laughs> over a cup of coffee, in my case. Right. They're great insights. Thank you so much for your time this morning, David. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.